Welcome to the Ellie Hilbert podcast, Enlightened Conversations about all things mindful, meditative, and good. Today, we have Alex Nelson joining us on the show, anchoring in the masculine. Alex, you're our first male guest. I'm delighted to have you and your perspective talking today a little bit about men's work and plant medicine and whatever else comes up. So welcome. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here and honored to be the first man on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, So you're coming, you're calling in from Minnesota, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What part of Minnesota do you live? Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Were you born and raised in Minnesota? Yeah, I was. Actually, the house that I'm in right now is about a block away from the house that I grew up in. So it's interesting to be so close by. Yeah. Cool. What part of Minneapolis? Uh, South Minneapolis. I'm over by uh, the university, basically. Awesome. I don't know if I've ever shared with you. I'm from Minnesota. Oh, I don't think I knew that. (laughs) Yeah. I was born and raised in um, like Wilmer area. I grew Mm -hmm. up in Spicer and lived in New London Spicer until I was 33. So like 2016, I moved and, um, you know, traveled out to Reno and I've been out West since then. But yeah, I know, I know that Midwest area pretty well. So yeah. Near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So um, I was just kind of going over some of your more recent work and you are um, into coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Do you do um, all demographics or just men? Yeah, I do all demographics, although I certainly end up uh, coaching more men than women, mm-hmm. it seems. Um, mm-hmm. But I do have a couple of women clients who I really love coaching because it's just a different perspective and a different problem set often. So, Yeah. And I think there's a different, um, as coaches, I'm, you know, I do a lot of coaching, but more therapy. And as a therapist, you know, working with both demographics, there's a different, a different style kind of emerges, you mm-hmm. know, communicating with men versus communicating with women and even um, other genders, you know, just the, um, I think it can also be a very intuitive subconscious process as we're facilitating that to like, just, yeah, communicate different, differently. And then like you said, like some um, problems or concerns that might be more unique to the genders. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your men's work. Yeah. So men's work is something near and dear to my heart. um, Something that I've been the beneficiary of. And really, I think I first started with it probably almost six years ago now. Mm -hmm. And it was a real core need for me because I kind of realized I was running this repetitive pattern where I'd get into a relationship. You know, I had my friends, but just we wouldn't talk about anything deep or emotional. So I'd be in the relationship and the relationship would end up being my sole receptacle for all of the emotions I was feeling, which, Mm -hmm. of course, doesn't work super good. And I think most women can attest to it that they're like, you know, I love when my man opens up. But when I'm the only person who's getting dumped all the emotions on, that's a lot to hold. Mm -hmm. And so I had kind of identified a need for myself to have other men in my life who are high quality, high integrity, willing to speak truth, willing to open up about their emotions. So I started a weekly call with a few of my friends where we would just sit and we would talk every week about our goals, about what was coming up for us. And it was really productive. It was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fast forward to joining Fit for Service, and I ended up actually starting to run uh, the men's call for fit for service about half a year into that first year of 2019. And ever since then, it's just blossomed to where I've, you know, held retreats and sat with men in their deepest, darkest moments and kind of had all of those in-between experiences that I think as men, we are so craving and so desperate for 
those initiation experiences, those rites of passage, those moments of being held in our sadness and in our brokenness and not feeling like we're being judged. Um, so it's been a beautiful teacher in my life and definitely something that has uh, come full circle to where I just get so much value out of it that it's like so easy now. It's just like, oh, this is yeah. great. <laughs> right. Oh, what a gift. And that's, um, like you said, like I think with men's men's work and men doing work with other men, whether that's one-on-one, you know, with a coach or in a container with other, um, in a group container, I think that's so necessary for the masculine right now to not only be witnessed and held by the feminine, which is, semi-common, whether like you said, that's in a relationship space or with other facilitators. Um, but having that like brotherhood and, um, mentorship, uh, leadership, you know, of like other men to look up to other men that are modeling, um, and in their integrity and doing the work as well. And how that gives permission for that expansion, which is not, um, I think it's becoming more commonplace in our culture, but it's been something that is, you know, we've been kind of like deconstructing the pressure that men are probably under, you know, and, and doing a lot of the work that I do, which is primarily with women, although I do have a fair number of male clients, um, women talk a lot about, you know, the different pressures and things like that, but I think that it can be overlooked um, by women that men are also experiencing different pressure and unique um, concerns because as the patriarchy is, there is that like, and, and however we understand the patriarchy as well. I had Melanie Barrett on the show a couple of weeks ago and she did a beautiful job kind of, you know, helping us reconceptualize what is the matriarchy, what is the patriarchy in a way that is a little bit more supportive of both, frankly. Um, but, you know, when we're as women, we often see men as the oppressor and we as the oppressed. And um, so we forget that men might also have, you know, experiences that they need to work through and be held and particularly by other men. Yeah. It's such a, it's an interesting topic to double click into a little bit because I think, you know, the reality is so many men are really broken and they're really, really hurting. And because they aren't given any tool sets to deal with their emotions, a lot of the behaviors we see that are negative from men towards women are a result of not knowing how to cope with this brokenness. You can look at, incels, involuntary celibates, as we call them. And those people are just people who probably tried over and over again to have a successful, healthy, romantic relationship and just failed over and over again because nobody ever told them like, hey, here's what you're doing wrong. Like you're kind of coming across like a creep. Maybe don't do that thing anymore. That would be great. Try this instead. Maybe be a little bit more honest, et cetera, et cetera. And so over time that augurs in until they just go, well, women are just terrible as a whole category and it's this mindset that with healthy male mentorship they can be broken out of very quickly but there's just such a lack of that healthy male mentorship and Mm -hmm. oftentimes we get the exact opposite we get unhealthy male mentorship we learn the wrong ways to behave we learn not to talk about emotions we learn not to engage with women in a healthy way but see patterns of you know cheating or abuse or alcohol abuse or any of these things and so our inheritance becomes dysfunction and the dysfunction becomes the only thing we know and so we start taking those actions in the world right 
Right. Yeah. And I think with um, what you said about when men um, might be redirected or, you know, corrected from women in a lot of settings that can trigger, you know, women might be in, you know, in a protection wounding space then if, if there's, you know, some attention or energy is being directed at them, that's uncomfortable. We go into protection. Then our feedback is coming back from that defensive place, which then triggers or activates the rejection or inadequacy wound from a man. And so then his protection goes up. And like you said, you know, then there's that kind of push away from women and maybe hatred towards or resentment or contempt, which then like feeds that cycle. Whereas if it's man to man, the redirection might feel more supportive. Um, And even if it's kind of the same feedback that's delivered in a a more gentle way of like, Hey, there's, there's another way to go about this, you know, and that's the deconstruction happens. Yeah. And it's so important to understand for men that like, most women you go up and talk to, let's just imagine you're at a bar or you're out on the street. Like most women have had probably one off-putting interaction that day mm-hmm. already. Yeah. And so it's upon us to teach each other because look, we don't want a world where it's like, no, never walk up and talk to the girl because that's not great for anyone. That also right. is terrible. Mm-hmm. However, it's important for men to understand just things that they can do to like signal hey, I'm not a threat. Like, I want you to feel safe. And if you don't, I'll leave. Mm -hmm. And like, just these little tweaks of behavior and all of a sudden men are like, wow, I never knew it could be like this. Like, yeah, because when you signal safety to women and you signal that they are safe with you, they get the chance to blossom in the ways that you are desiring yourself as a man. But so many of them had so many bad experiences that when a guy comes up to them, they're not, a woman's not going to give him specific tactical good feedback it's more just like get away from me you're the fifth creep today and i'm sick of it and it's like fair enough that's why as men we hold that space for each other and go hey dude yeah walking up from behind her probably wasn't the best move wasn't your brightest idea maybe Uh, approach from the front where she could see you that would be mm, mm -hmm. yeah right as eye contact and a smile right yeah and that's and then that's also an opportunity for women to reprogram that men are not not all men are a threat or men you know um depending on the experiences i do um i'm just getting into some equine assisted therapy in my therapy practice and we talk a lot about um with the horses and the humans, horses are prey animals and their prey instinct is so strong, which involves typically running away, you know, moving away. And so anything that like closes in on them, whether it's, you know, a claustrophobic space or a human who we are perceived as a, as a threat and a predator because of like, even just our stature, the way that we walk directly towards what we want and women and men can have kind of a similar uh, energetic dance at times that women feel like prey and we then perceive men as the predator. And so deconstructing that first and foremost, um, it has to include that feeling of safety, like you said. And then when we have safety, we rebuild trust. And when we have trust, then we can bond. And just same thing with like horses and humans. I'm not going to get anywhere with my relationship with my horse if he doesn't trust me, which means I have to move slowly. I have to like cue in my body language, my voice, respecting his space that I'm safe I don't want anything from you. I just want to love you. <laughs> you know, if you don't want my love, that's okay. You know, until we slowly like build from there and men and women are, are pretty similar in that way, you know, and that's kind of, and I think if we can remember that, especially I think a request from women on behalf of men to like 
consider that perspective and have some curiosity that it's not about like these specific men necessarily, but as, you know, as a gender that that feels like potentially threatening and then we go into self-protection subconsciously pretty quick. Totally. Yeah. It's such an important concept from an understand that like safety comes first, no matter what. And until safety is communicated and the two of you are in a dance where she knows that, you know, I'll give an example here. That's a silly one, but it's a funny one. Anytime that a woman and I have been talking and, you know, we're having fun and then she's like, Hey, well, let's go back to your place. I make it a point to go, Hey, I just want to let you know that when we go back to my place. Like if you do not want to have sex, we do not have to. So at any point during the process, if that's your limit, mm-hmm. awesome. Let me know and I will honor that. And it's like, well, why do that? Well, because I want her to know that like, it's totally fine if we just make out for six hours. That's fun. (laughs) Cool. Mm -hmm. No big deal. Mm -hmm. But I think most men don't have the wherewithal to understand that what a woman might be feeling in a moment like that is like, okay, I'm going home with a strange guy. I don't know him. What's going on? Uh Uh-oh. What if he doesn't take no for an answer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it gets into that very triggered fear pathway. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting what you said about sort of prey versus predator, because, you know, most people do literally call it the chase. It is the chase of the dance of, Mm -hmm. you know, relationship of falling in love. Mm -hmm. So I think as we begin to help, especially our young men to understand that there's a different way to do this and there's a better way for them to just exist as men where they can be in integrity, they can be true to themselves, they will be happier, and they'll be getting the result that they want, which is connection with women if they're straight. And so it's like, it's just a win all around if we can start to help men level up this part of their psyche. Right. And that clarity with self then is allows for clarity between, you know, the sexes, Uh, you know, so if that gentleman is saying that, you know, I don't, it's okay if we don't have sex, like there's some clarity, like, Mm -hmm. yes, that's what I potentially like, but either Mm -hmm. one of us at any point can, you know, shift um, the trajectory and that's okay. You know, so there's this permission up front and that it's safe. It's not a trap. And that gives a woman, you know, a sense of relief to know that like, okay, I'm already, my boundaries are already respected. And so many women can fall into um, the, the fear or the trauma response of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, you know, to fight, to have like a really firm boundary up front, perhaps even a little bit too aggressively freeze, like, ah, what do I do? Flee, run away from the situation. Like, no, I don't, you know, I'm gonna stay really far away from it. I'm not interested in coming over. Um, and then the fawn is sometimes saying yes, when, maybe it's an internal no, or not really sure, or I feel like I should. And looking at men as like an authority figure that they have to do as they think he's expecting, which we can be wrong about Mm -hmm. that. And so if a man is also clear of like, no, I'm actually not expecting that, then that is, that's a kind of a moment for us to be like, whoa, okay. Like I'm, I'm projecting a lot onto here, onto this man based off of my past experiences. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that it's so important for men to, I call it activate other men Mm -hmm. is because with each man, let's imagine you're in a room of a hundred men and a hundred women, and all Mm -hmm. of them are straight for the purposes of this example. If you have even just 15 of the men who are deeply in integrity, Mm -hmm. none of the women in that room are at risk. Yeah. 
So it doesn't take that much of a proportion of men who are actually deeply in integrity. They understand how to create safety, but also how to look at each other and go, hey, man, that wasn't cool. Hey, dude, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Hey, the reason that she rejected you so harshly was probably because of this. So it's just important as men for us to both take the mantle on ourselves, to activate ourselves and to embrace this type of work, but also to call in our other brothers and go, hey, dude, Seeing mm-hmm. you've been struggling recently, like I feel you. You want to sit down and talk about it, and to do it gently and lovingly, because that's where a lot of people get gun shy with this work. Is they get so attacked in some realm of their life yeah. that then they just shut down and go, "There's no room for this. There's no space." So it's like, "Hey, come on, you and me can sit. We can talk. Th- we can talk through this. We can talk about what you're feeling, how you think things are maybe unfair because of whatever has happened to you in the past." But also we can start to look at how you might be contributing to things not working. How are things going for you that maybe you could change slightly and get mm-hmm. the thing you're looking for right. in a loving way? Right. Yeah. And what is the support in that process as well, you know, for that that man doing that work? Um, what do you, you know, there's a lot of conversation about um in men's work and with, you know, women looking at men, experiencing men as the aggressor or the predator or, you know, quote unquote, the problem, what in your work, what, if we were to shift that um, perspective a little bit, what would you say about like the, the, the experience of men as it pertains to women, you know, whether that's like women as quote unquote, the problem, what say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I would say the primary feeling men have towards women is confusion. (laughs) They're just shockingly confused. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. understand. She said this, but then this happened, or I don't know what she wants. And, you know, there's a dance that happens between the masculine and the feminine energies. And I use those words because anyone contains both and they're in different proportions. Like I probably put myself at a 70% masculine, 30% feminine energy. Mm -hmm. So I'll be naturally attracted to someone who's the flip of that as my opposite. Mm -hmm. And, but you know, someone could be a man and be 70% feminine, 30% masculine, but that's a tangent. So Mm -hmm. the confusion in men is just what women are looking for. And really, because we don't even at a young age, have anyone talking about unless someone is blessed to have like sisters and a really good mom who kind of teaches them how to treat women respectfully and lovingly. There's no arena in which we learn that. Whereas even women, I think are at the slightest of advantages in this area in that at least it's a topic of conversation from a younger age. At least there's the crappy Cosmo magazine article that says like (laughs) 10 ways to make him love you or like it's like a thought like, oh, I could do something different or something could change or whatever. Men on average don't have that. So there's just this state of confusion where, you know, literally it's in the, it's so entrenched in the lingo. Like if a guy goes out, it's called getting lucky because he has no idea how it happened. And it's just a roll of the dice. It's like getting lucky. Mm -hmm. So the primary emotion is probably confusion, perhaps followed by fear, which to some women, when they first hear that, they're like, really fear, like men are scared of women, but like you tell any man, Mm -hmm. okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in front of 10 women and you're going to do something embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And that fear, they they would rather fight a tiger. Yeah, (laughs) They would rather like 
try to fight some other huge guy with their bare hands and try to win than do that. So fear is a, a close second, I would say. Right. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, with the fear and not like embarrassment tied in, you know, men, I think more so with women are um, more susceptible to the humiliation wounding. And so that fear of humiliation and what they perceive as humiliating, where women, I don't hear that one as much um, in, in the work that I do that, you know, of course we can experience humiliation. It might have some wounding surrounding that, but that's typically not the one that we dance around as much. You know, it's, it's often like inadequacy or unlovability or, you know, feelings of unworthiness, um, rejection, abandonment, things like that. But it's typically the human, um, I see men with humiliation, which is interesting that you tie that in. Um, and I like what you said as well about women, you know, having that advantage of having more conversation kind of generally about everything, <laughs> you know, including love and relationships and all things. And, you know, in terms of evolutionary psychology, when we look back, you know, on our lineage, women, I think we have more, um, I guess, like intuitive orientation towards the collective, you know, being in a collective of women, you know, staying, even if we look back at like hunter and gathering days where women would stay home and be in the household and get together, have the red tents and men would be, you know, contributing to the household by leaving mm -hmm. and protecting, providing, hunting, gathering at war, whatever. And that's so that contribute contribution involves leaving and coming back where women are staying. And then there's that like community in the collective and that's why like sisterhood wounding a can be so strong and so healing you know to have like a, a, a circle of women that we just we're kind of like but we also have this like awareness of how to talk about things and process and hold space and not interject and give advice and fix and it's just like like women just tend to know how to do that whereas men may or may not even have that in their life much less have that as a skill set. Yeah, and this is why it was so important in times past, because if you think about, so what's the MO of what men would do mm -hmm. way back when? Mm -hmm. Okay, if you're hunting, the operating principle of hunting is, hey, dude, shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be quiet <laughs> right. or you are going to scare away the thing. Right. Same thing for war, same thing for any anything we'd be out and doing away from the tribe. So one of the ways that societies throughout the world circumvented this and still had healthy men or tried to have healthy men. It's not like societies were magically perfect before this. I don't, I don't subscribe to the, uh, mm -hmm. I, I call it ancestor porn. Sometimes when people are like, yeah. yeah, back in the, back in the day, everything is perfect. No, yeah. but one of the ways that they mm -hmm. tried to, uh, fix this was rites of passage mm -hmm. because rites of passage initiated men fully into the tribe so that they entered with both a clear conception of the code of conduct that they were held to and also their responsibilities that they had with the tribe. Mm -hmm. So at least coming in, although they didn't have the communication tools that now we value, they had this clear and keen sense of, okay, but here's what I stand for. And here's what I'm supposed to do to show up for my people. And men now, I mean, it's super common that you probably hear this and I hear it all the time where they're just like, I don't know where I fit in. Yeah. I don't know how I'm supposed to show up for the people around me. I don't feel important. I don't feel heroic. These are all symptoms of that mm -hmm. missing link. Right. Yeah. And like you said, as like healthy men, you know, back in our, our lineage and our heritage that, that, um, that's so culturally 
defined and subjective, you know, determ- determining like why are we defining whatever as healthy, you know, and now as we look at more modern times, like healthy, a healthy man or woman, we we're rounding that out a little bit more, you know, to have, yeah, like that communication and be more emotionally available. Whereas like you said, if we're, you know, hunting at war, like it's not the time to like drop in and process emotions. Like you know, we, we like act, you know, we, we, we have a goal and we're, we're acting and maybe working together, making, maybe working individually, but it's, it is more about action, which is why men are more comfortable in action roles, you know, it's clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what kinds of, this is a lot about a lot of your work. It sounds like you're doing a lot of like relationship work. Do you, what, what types of issues do you see arise in men right now that might be more individually based? Yeah. It's so interesting. So I think relationships really to me, the longer I've been coaching are the ultimate mirror because they're the thing that exposes. I've experienced this myself. You you think you've done the work and then you get into a relationship. Oh crap. There's plenty here. Mm-hmm. Um, individually, what I see a lot of men struggling with is choosing and then tolerating women who are bad fits for them. Mm-hmm. And this comes from both a scarcity mentality of just, they don't feel like they have any options. So they just mm-hmm. take what they can get. Mm-hmm. And also a lack of those same communication tools we're talking about. So even though, you know, men are typically more action oriented, so they more might be more likely to blow up or go, why are you fucking doing that? Or have some anger outburst. They're not very good at actually getting to the root of what a boundary is and in expressing it and enforcing it with the clarity that the woman in the relationship actually needs to make right. the adjustment. So right. as an example, for those listening, you know, it's one thing to go, it pisses me off when you never put away your dishes. Mm-hmm. Now, at that level of analysis, it's just about the dishes. Mm-hmm. Cool. But then five days later, when it's like, it also pisses me off that you never pick up your clothes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, now we have a pattern, but it's not about any individual thing. So when the man has the tools to actually dig a little bit deeper and he can go, it makes me feel like I don't matter and I'm your maid and I'm stuck cleaning up which then makes me feel like I'm not a valued partner in this relationship. Mm-hmm. That's a much clearer <laughs> expression. Yeah. And then the conversation can be negotiated from there. Right. So a lot of the work I end up doing with men is just getting to clarity of like what they actually feel. There's a really, uh, I'll forget the name of the book. Maybe you know it up your head, but there's a book talking about how women from younger age have more words for their emotions mm-hmm. and men have much fewer and so as a result, every uh, emotion in a man's head watersheds into one of these like five emotions, you know, jokingly, yeah. anger, horny, happy, like, yep. and everything gets into those. Right. Mm-hmm. Where if you have specificity, you go, oh, abandoned. Mm-hmm. Oh, humiliated. Mm-hmm. Oh, these other more specific feelings, then you can actually address it. So a lot of the work is kind of helping men dig underneath and get to the levels where they can understand like, okay, what am I really feeling here? I know it's manifesting as anger, Mm-hmm. But what's actually underneath the hood? Yeah. If, like you said, if we look under the hood and then we see like anger secondary or reaction to like, I'm feeling abandoned and now that makes me mad, <laughs> you know, that there's that. But yeah, when we go deeper um, and that increases our range and then when we can communicate that with clarity, then the relationship also is enriched by that because a woman then can hear, whoa, you're not feeling valued. And I know that I value you. 
I need to understand how, you know, where is that disconnect? Whereas if it's just about the dishes or the laundry or the whatever, then we feel criticized or we feel like they're controlling, they're trying to control the environment or, you know, and then, and then we react to that and then no one's hearing one another. And then, you know, everyone's kind of turning away instead of turning towards, and then there's that division. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely a, a balance for men and honestly internal family systems has probably been like biggest Mm. ally in this type of work because that systemology seems to be just really easy for men to actually get into and grasp because Mm -hmm. of just the nature of how it works and unearthing each of the layers and going deeper down and deeper down and deeper down so Mm -hmm. that's been a beautiful ally in this type of work and is worth you know any man if you're seeking out that type of uh therapy i think you'll find value in it yeah ifs is really powerful work and i think it can like you said it can require it definitely requires an imagination and it definitely requires um the willingness to acknowledge what feels small which isn't always comfortable you know because those protector parts that are um small or feeling you know quote unquote weak but mostly just vulnerable but when we can have some compassion for that and understand how they show up and then how like another protector part comes in which is typically like the manager the anger the you know whatever feels more empowered but from a disempowered place Mm -hmm. so yeah um how did you get into men's work yes i mean really it was that those initial woundings of myself um Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a various different men's circles I've sat with over the years um, that I've really learned a lot from. But a lot of it was just observe and report, if you will, where I just watch my own experience of being a man and just kind of feel. And I think to capture the feeling, it'd just be like felt like I was done a disservice by society because I had so few tools to deal with what I was going through. I remember just like after certain breakups, I'm just like laying in my bed crying and I'm like, huh, how come I have no productive way to process this? How come I have no one I can really talk to about this? How come I have no like tools in my toolkit that help me understand why this even happened? Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the fire that heated the steam engine. And then of course the actual directionality was determined as I started to talk to more men and started to sit in other men's circles and fit for service and see healthy examples of masculinity and go, Oh, that's what I'm aiming at. Okay. That makes sense. Cool. I can get my head around that type of man. Got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, I'm hearing too that like answering a call, you know, where then as a student, we can become the teacher, you know, integrating the tools that we've been given and learn, integrate them in a different way, you know, in, in more of a leadership role, perhaps, but still that space. What would you say you're uh, as a coach for men, what has been most healing for you? Mm. Two things. I think in my personal journey, the most healing thing has just been learning to express genuine love to those around me, but especially to the men around me. Yeah. Still not perfect at that. That's a work in progress, but that expression, it's healing for everyone involved. So when I can just message a friend, I know I go, Hey man, I was just thinking about you today. And I really appreciate how you show up in the world. Like both of us get a positive charge off of that. And the more that I do that, the deeper my friendships and the deeper my friendships, the happier I am. Mm -hmm. So that's personal. On the uh, client side of things, I mean, really the most healing or beautiful part is just watching men have these crescendo moments where they kind of realize 
how they had, you know, from whether it's patterns they inherited when they were younger or just how they act, they realize that they are the master of their destiny mm-hmm. when it comes to all of the problems that they perceive they have. Mm-hmm. And for men, I think a lot, well, I'm sure this is the case for women too, but speaking specifically to the men here, there, there's this feeling of like, the world is unfair. Men are just discarded. We're just meant to go to work and support the family and come home and da 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 da. And all of these feelings are patterns that we inherited, yeah. but then that we chose to perpetuate mm-hmm. and we chose to continue with. So there's this certain moment that men will have when they kind of like glitch out of the matrix and they go, wait, I can choose something different. And like, that's my favorite thing to see when I see that. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> that's it. That's what, yeah. yeah. And that's such an honor to, to witness, you mm-hmm. know, as, as coaches, I think we, we get to do a lot of witnessing and that I think is the most fulfilling and, you know, really ultimately our job is like doing some facilitation, a lot of holding space, you know, creating a container, but really then just kind of like allowing, you know, the, the allow and then seeing what emerges from there is such a gift. And I think then when we are in, in our integrity as coaches, therapists, what have you, um, we're then integrating as well, you know, and we're allowing that, you know, what the messages that we're conveying or the work that, you know, we're holding space for, if there's a check-in, like, how is this, how's this going for me? And not that that's expected to be perfect or have, you know, fully worked through, but, you know, to, to really walk the walk the best to our ability, um, and, and how that witnessed. And then those moments as well, where clients hold up mirrors to us, that is like, well, that's, Hmm. this is for me. <laughs> I'm sure you've had some of those sessions that are like, totally. yeah, that would feel like who's, who's the wow, That was great advice, Alex, that I should take. <laughs> right. Right. Or even sometimes the clients or I'm like, you know, not that they're like, that there's a inappropriate role reversal, but just no. for something said that's like, Understood. Okay, yeah, yeah, I, I hear that. Thank you. You know, like tricky universe, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's being handed to me here. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have a retreat coming up. Yeah. 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 Tell us about that. Yeah. So this is going to be, I'm really excited about this. This is the first uh, ayahuasca retreat that I am, we'll call it facilitating. I'm not the actual shaman on hand serving the ayahuasca. I don't have that level of training, nor do I necessarily aspire to. Um, But one of the gaps me and my co-host Mitchell had sort of identified is there's a lot of these beautiful ayahuasca retreat centers in South America where people will go down and travel. And then, you know, for a week, they're in this deep space of processing community and then they come home. Yeah. And then things are pretty much the same. Yeah. And they're confused or a little lost or a little shattered or a little bit broken open and they don't have the tools to actually navigate their life back mm-hmm. in the real world. So one of the things I've wanted to create for a while is a comprehensive immersive that both two weeks before the experience gives you the tools to actually work effectively with the medicine, Mm -hmm. things like IFS, things like basic meditation practices, things like dream interpretation, all of these different tools that someone can go into so that when they sit in that first ayahuasca ceremony, they're like, I've got the tools to handle this. I'm not totally blown out of the water. Um, and then actually knowing the people you go in with 
Mm-hmm. So it's not, I'm sitting with 15 random strangers and now I'm expected to dive into my deepest, darkest trauma in front of a bunch of people I don't know in a place I've never been to. And everybody like, else's. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, I've actually met these people at least via Zoom before. I've got a little idea of their story. I know a little bit about them. So I'm more comfortable to actually express with them and to share space with them in that deep, sacred way. And then of course the retreat itself, which will have three beautiful ayahuasca ceremonies. It's actually the only indigenous woman-owned ayahuasca center in the Iquitos area. So that was one that uh, Mitchell had worked at for a while. And we kind of chose because it has that extra special feminine touch to it. And yeah. super cool in that way. And then the back end of the experience, the support. They're like, okay, great. So you realized that you've been doing your life all wrong, but what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Should you quit your job today? Probably not. Nudge, right. nudge. Probably just wait at least a month. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of time. Yeah. Um, but providing that comprehensive support, because I think one thing we can talk more deeply about this, but one thing that I've really come to realize is these psychedelics in general, are, are they're a really big tool in the toolkit. It's a really big hammer, a really big wedge. And in some of the indigenous ayahuasca practices, because they live in such a beautiful community already, and so the the resilience of the psyche is actually outsourced to the community. Mm-hmm. You have other people around. So if my psyche is just totally broken for a month, it's actually fine. Right. People will take care of me. I'll be all right. I'll put myself back together slowly. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in the West. Most right. people are coming home to people who they can't even talk to about psychedelics. So it's giving people the tools to actually build the resilience beforehand, yeah. go in and only dive to the depth of their I don't want to say comfort, but the depth of their capability in the moment. Mm -hmm. And then to come home and actually be able to take these huge archetypal things they might have learned and make them a reality and gain traction and have the support on the back end so they can kind of go, okay, cool. I have people to talk to about this. When I'm crying on a Wednesday at work, I know I can call Alex and he'll understand even if my boss probably doesn't want to hear about my ayahuasca journey. So yeah, I'm really excited about it because it's, I think, the first step we're taking in this journey of doing quite a few of these, but to kind of provide a more comprehensive uh, support. Yeah, this is um, this is beautiful and really powerful. I'm happy to hear this because I think in in the psychedelic world, which is getting more... um, acknowledgement and recognition for, you know, the medicine that it can be, which is beautiful. Um, there's then of course, opportunity for it to be applied perhaps recklessly. And mm-hmm. so to have, um, that comprehensive support on the front end and the back end to understand what we're going into having support is really important because I think sometimes with, um, especially powerhouses like ayahuasca, people mm-hmm. will kind of assume that that's like a quick fix or a peak experience. And maybe it's the ego is leading the way into. And then of course, during that, you know, the sits. So, you know, the, all those protector parts are going to be running rampant and, you know, and it's just like, it can be a lot, you know, it's like a rubber band that snaps back kind of, you know, and then when we're on on the other side, that stuff is still kind of what's circulating and perhaps, you know, a little bit more rash decision-making and things like that. And so to have that inner work beforehand in a more familiar state of consciousness as well, will lend itself to a and perhaps even a more gentle experience, maybe not, but like, that's what I'm hearing is just the feeling of like being held and just more gentle um, because of that work that's being done on the front end and after. Yeah, I mean, so much of the difficulty in any plant medicine ceremony comes from the resistance to what is becoming present. And it's, uh, 
you know, I like to say this halfway jokingly, but also fairly seriously, like there's the saying that everything happens for a reason Mm -hmm. and okay, I hear you. That's a really good way to analyze things that have already happened Mm -hmm. because it puts you into a positive Mm -hmm. problem solving. How did this happen for me? Not to me mind state. However, it's a really bad forward-looking tool. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. the reason that things happen is because you're stupid and you made a bad decision. Right, like, <laughs> yeah, I need to prepare, right. Uh-huh. So it, it's coming in with that full preparedness of like, you know, and also being in integrity for both me and Mitchell. I know we've both facilitated for long enough ourselves with other medicines that we have no qualms about turning someone away if they're not ready. I'm just going, you're not ready. Like, I hear you. I know you really want to go, but it's not the time yet. Come find me in a year. Mm-hmm. And having the person actually come in with the right tool set and the right level of resilience, okay. it changes the game, it helps them be fully ready so that yeah. they can actually take off a bite that they can chew and not when it's bigger in their head. Mm-hmm. That's a much needed ethical approach, I think, to have some of that screening and, you know, the the willingness to say no, you know, not not this time or not quite ready. Here's some of the recommendations to continue on the path, but, you know, not perhaps not quite ready for mm-hmm. for that. Um, that's beautiful. So what other what other medicine have you worked with, like personally yeah. and professionally? Yeah, absolutely. So professionally, mushrooms and MDMA have been my two go to uh, sure. to sit with people. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily mushrooms, MDMA is more of a, a secondary for some very specific types of cases. Um, I've been doing that for about eight, almost eight and a half years now, uh, you know, facilitating for other people. I've mm-hmm. been engaging with mushrooms for about 10 years myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of personally, I mean, I don't know what I haven't tried yet. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. I'd have got, gone through the gamut, but some of the high points have definitely been ayahuasca, wachuma, yopo, which was very intense and is not a widely recommended one, but was super powerful. Um, yeah. Cool. How did you get into plant medicine in Minnesota? I mean, being from Minnesota, that's not... Um, a widely acknowledged modality. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of, I mean, being from Minnesota, even with, um, Minnesota can be very liberal, you know, as you know, um, it can be very open-minded in some communities. And also there's that like, um, that polarity of the opposite. And in the being, you know, in the medical, the mental health industry, it's, I haven't seen it until recently be more acknowledged for um, the power that it can that it can hold for clients and, and seeing a lot of like collaborative work of therapists, doctors working, you know, with other people that have access to the medicine or carry the medicine or knowledge and making those referrals, which is wonderful to see that being integrated more. But going back to my question, how did you get into that in Minnesota? It's super funny. You're totally right. There's a weird juxtaposition in Minnesota where it's like, this is one of the most gay friendly cities I've ever been in. Yep. And yet weed still isn't legal. Right. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Mark. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, yeah. So initially I was from the age of about 15 or 16 to the age of about 22, an alcoholic. And, mm-hmm. you know, I went through various different phases, but essentially got to a point where I was drinking five, six nights a week. And really had, my entire ego has identified as the party guy who had the cute girl who knew where the good party was. And mm-hmm. that wasn't working for me, of course. Mm-hmm waking up feeling empty, feeling lost, feeling just sad. I tried to quit cold turkey quite a few times and just had no success because it was, you know, if my personality was 100% circle, that was 98% of the circle. So the 
death pains of that piece of me were extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And it was a super early Tim Ferriss podcast, just mm-hmm. randomly in a throwaway line that he goes, mushrooms really helped with my depression. Hmm. Yeah, Tim Ferriss. Another substance that will yeah. help you. <laughs> yeah. you know, Tim yeah. Ferriss is someone that I respect right. for his yeah. sort of very even uh, mm-hmm. approach to things. It's very methodical, carefully researched approach. So I was like, okay, if he's mentioning that, even a throwaway line, maybe there's something here. So mm-hmm. after much searching, of course, at that time, I could have found like any other drug pretty easily, but finding mushrooms was like extraordinarily hard. <laughs> took right. like a, a month to finally mm-hmm. find some. And I did something I, to be clear, I do not recommend, I do not at all recommend this to anyone listening. Do not do this, do it a different way than I did it, but this is what worked. Um, I took five grams alone in my room in the dark and didn't even have any music on, just went straight in. And I had this really beautiful transformative experience where I just felt every molecule of my being dissolve out and be completely surrounded with unconditional love which Mm -hmm. at a point with so little self-love that was the exact thing that i needed over the course of the next couple months i did a few more personal ceremonies um and then didn't drink for a whole year i was like wow Mm -hmm. this really worked and after Mm -hmm. that year i was able to reestablish a mostly healthy relationship with alcohol Mm -hmm. to where it'd be like okay you know a couple times a year I'm going to go out and get really drunk for my birthday and that's okay. I don't need to teetotal and not have any alcohol ever. Mm-hmm. However, I know that if I start drinking every weekend, okay, there's a road there that it could be easily right. gone down. That sort of illuminated the change for me. And keep in mind, this is, you know, just under 10 years ago now, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the current studies we have coming out weren't available yet. You're right. just, just on the front edge. So, I started to have friends who were like, wow, Alex, what changed? That's awesome. You're doing great now. And like, yeah, well, here's what I did. And they'd be like, well, can I try that? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So I'd start to sit with friends just one-on-one. And really, at that point, you're just a space holder. It's like, I'm making sure you don't jump out the window, man. Right. <laughs> and that's it. Right. Um, but over time, that practice sort of developed into a more formalized practice. And yeah, really became piece of my life's calling at least that was really beautiful to perceive because it was so helpful for me right. such a beautiful teacher for me yeah it's incredible and you know I I struggled with alcohol addiction for many years as well starting in my teens and into my early 30s and um that that leaning in towards recovery you know for for most people I think that struggle with addiction of any form of substance and in in this instance alcohol um there's that like you said it becomes such a part of our identity and such um you know like kind of the go-to coping mechanism for any form of discomfort and there isn't a frame of reference then for well what 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 do I have without this? How do I socialize? How do I cope? What do I do when I'm bored? What do I, you know? And so then quitting, even if it's cold Turkey feels like void space entirely. And, and such that like takes time to cultivate. And then there can be those cravings and obsessions. And did you experience that after you had the, um, that experience with your mushrooms, did you Jones for alcohol or was there kind of a, were you gifted that freedom from that? Yeah, so I'd say between, because there's there's four total experiences that I did uh, with mushrooms. So between experience one and two, my drinking was probably cut down by 50%. Wow. I was drinking much less. And I was already like, wow, this is way better. So I got to see a little bit of the like proof in the pudding mm-hmm. ahead of time. I was like, well, I haven't yeah. completely quit drinking, but this is already like 
I feel inspired again. Like, yeah, harm reduction. Big yeah, time. Cool. Yeah, measurable. <laughs> um, after the second ceremony, I would say it probably stayed about the same, maybe decreased a little bit. That second ceremony is really difficult. That was like the atonement. The first one was the love. The second one was like, hey, you've been a real shithead to all your friends and family for a long time. Um, and then the third ceremony was sort of a culmination of the two. And then the fourth ceremony was just the mushrooms going, hey, don't make us your new alcohol, <laughs> which was really beautiful. And I think there's some, if not a completely perfect mechanism built into most psychedelics in that way. Um, so over the course of that, I kind of got a chance to wean off to some extent, which really meant that there wasn't a point where I felt like I was just craving it. Mm-hmm. And also it definitely helped that it had really refocused me on some of the things I found really inspiring and things I want to work on. So I had like a good excuse of something else to do mm-hmm. instead of drinking. And that was like a huge component of any recovery is like, okay, well, drinking was taking up 60% of your time. What are you doing with that time instead? Because if it's just being bored, yeah, good luck. It's probably right. not going to work well. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, that kind of reminds me of, like you said, the, you know, the, the series of like experiencing the love and then the atonement and then kind of a mix that almost reminds me of like 12 step work, you know, in some way, and not just the, like the AA model, but like just 12 steps, there is that like feeling of like falling into being held by love, unconditional love and feeling not alone, spiritually speaking. And then there is that atonement piece of an amends making, you know, is a huge part of like the, the, I don't know the numbers of the steps, but the middle steps of like, well, I'm going to ship back or I feel this shame or these relational components from trauma, traumas from the past and taking ownership and accountability for that in the ways that we need to. And then, like you said, moving forward of like, you know, not the new alcohol, this is kind of the new way of living essentially. And with plant medicine, especially psilocybin, that there's, it does address the neurochemistry, which is a big part of alcohol is like the dopamine surges and the depletion and so on and so forth. And there is that with plant medicine. And I think that's partly why sometimes people that don't understand plant medicine as well are really hesitant to recommend or even like, quote unquote, prescribe to people that are struggling with addiction because they don't want it just to be like what I would call addiction hopping, you know, take away the alcohol, enter in something else, which we may run the risk of with literally anything, a behavior, a substance, sugar, sex, gambling, you know, work, exercise, you know, and in harm reduction, I would say that's probably better. (laughs) But (laughs) Right. Yeah. But a lot of people don't understand plant medicine and kind of, you know, lump it into drugs. And that's where, you know, our war on drugs did us no favors. So Yeah. yeah. People grew up with a lot of programming from that. And it definitely, you know, it's not a, it's not a panacea. It's not something that'll automatically fix your problems. You have to be willing to do the work. Yeah. You know, one of the benefits that I had at that point in my life when I first engaged was, while I wasn't actively suicidal, I was certainly at the point where if a bus hit me, I was cool with that. Right. And so I had the ultimate level of surrender. So I was like, anything has to be better than this. Yeah. Which is the right mindset. Well, it's one of the right mindsets to engage with plant medicines in, which is like, I am willing to work on whatever I need to work on. I am willing to see whatever I need to see. There's no part of me that's resisting some crappy part of my personality. Like I'm any piece of me, any part can Mm -hmm. die at the altar and that's okay. And I want to move forward. So it's helpful in that way. And it's nice that, you know, mushrooms at least have a mechanism built in. Like you can't take them every day. Mm -hmm you literally will stop tripping 
it takes mm-hmm. twice as much each consecutive day, give mm-hmm. or take, depending on the person. But right. it's got a built-in addiction mechanism, which is fantastic. Yeah. How do you um how do you compare and contrast like psychedelics such as um, psilocybin and plants versus um, MDMA and something more synthetic, you know, that we often talk about like the spirit of the plant, which I feel like is kind of easy to identify with when we're looking at like ayahuasca or psilocybin, because it is actually a plant, whereas like MDMA, LSD, things like that. Say more about that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So we'll we'll take a firm step into the woo-woo conjecture territory here. (laughs) I'll give you my real opinion. Um, So I pretty firmly am in the camp of the chemical gateway theory, shall we call it? Mm -hmm. And that each of these chemicals that's produced, whether it's by psilocybin or MDMA or by LSD, is a door with which you step through to a place. And the Mm -hmm. repository of the amount of memories that are in that place from other people tripping is what gives it the felt sense of depth or vastness or being more nurturing or being a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, so medicines that are relatively new, mm-hmm. LSD, MDMA, people mm-hmm. often say, I think it's an old Terrence McKenna quote, he's like, LSD is like walking into an empty office building mm-hmm. and mushrooms is like walking into a, a lush jungle that's yeah. teeming with life. Um, that is the felt experience. Mm-hmm. But they still have their own specific roles and purposes. And sometimes certain people can feel friction with ayahuasca or with mushrooms where they wouldn't have felt the friction with MDMA. Mm -hmm. Because in my perception, at least, they're brushing up against these retained experiences and then they're having friction with some part of their personality up against whether it's the spirit of ayahuasca or the spirit of mushrooms or just the contained experiences Mm -hmm. um similarly i think just for different types of needs there are better and worse substances to use for each thing so iboga is a great example if someone's addicted to heroin i am only sending them to iboga like ibogaine has just been proven over and over again to be abundantly effective for opioid addiction which is one of the biggest things we struggle with in the west right now and if someone has clinical ptsd i'm probably going to send them to mdma assisted therapy the therapy is a really key part of that though for Mm -hmm. people to know you can't just take mdma on a wednesday and party it up and (laughs) my ptsd is cured um if someone has anxiety or depression, I'm probably going to send them to mushrooms. I'm probably going to send them into that place where they can start to navigate their parts and understand why they're ringing certain alarm bells emotionally and what those alarm bells are trying to signal to them, what Mm -hmm. maybe needs to change in their life. And yeah, I think uh, I'll put a bookmark there, but we can continue on the topic as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I like what you were saying about like MDMA versus the psilocybin that if, you know, walking into the empty office and for some that can feel really um, like empty, I guess, like, you know, like I'm feeling just into the energy of like an empty office space feels just kind of sterile, kind of boring, you know, and yeah, that open space is also like in therapy would call that like a blank slate, you know, that like, okay, well, what are we going to do with all this space? You know, there's like endless opportunity potentially. Whereas in the jungle, there is that lushness, there's a lot of life um, and yet less space to move. 
Yeah, it's, I think just one more piece on that is like the, the reason that MDMA is so effective with therapy is because it needs that additional stimulus. Mm -hmm. Same reason that LSD is so wonderful for like a music festival within mm -hmm. reason, because with that additional outside stimulus, it no longer feels empty. It actually just amplifies your ability to perceive the joy, playfulness, whatever it is, it's already there. Right. Whereas mm -hmm. if you take like mushrooms, you know, I'm, I'm more confident that if someone took a gram or two of mushrooms and they just like laid down that they might get some profound messages. Whereas if you took, you know, point one of MDMA and laid down, I'm not so confident that you'd get any deep internal messages from that. Mm -hmm. Right. So with the MDMA, it's like enhancing, you know, the input, I guess, whatever, yeah. like you had the additional stimulation. Um, what do you recommend for your clients or, you know, even listeners that you might not be working with? Um, for if they ha are embarking into um, a journey with plant medicine or psychedelics, what would your advice be to them as they get a, as they get started? Yeah, so I'll, I'll categorize here and say for average person who is looking for self-improvement to discover themselves more or is maybe dealing with like low-level depression or low-level anxiety, um, for that person, what I would begin doing is microdosing. Mm -hmm. um, ideally psilocybin, but could be LSD as well. The mm -hmm. only reason I hesitate on LSD is it's just, it's so potent that the difference between a microdose and a macrodose is a really small amount. And unless you have a really good source that's ethical about their dosing, you don't always know what you're getting. So easy to end up in the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. um, mushrooms, that problem is not as present. You still need to be conscious, but it's not as present. Um, microdosing first. So it allows you to build a frame of reference for the medicine. It often allows you to just gain a little bit more clarity, a little bit more ability to process your emotions, a little bit more ability to just think clearly about the things in your life and builds a relationship with the medicine. Yeah. before you actually go sit with a bigger experience. Mm -hmm. So it means that then when you go and you sit in that first mushroom ceremony, you're not like, what is this feeling? Why does my body feel like this? It's, mm -hmm. oh, cool. I kind of know a little bit about this. This is kind of how this goes. Cool. I'm comfortable. Um, you know, then I'd escalate to a mushroom ceremony. And then from there, I think it opens up quite a bit. I do think people should try mushrooms for the most part before they go and sit with a bigger medicine, air quotes, like ayahuasca or wachuma or boga or any of these things. Um, but, you know, after the first mushroom or two mushroom journeys, then it kind of opens up to what they feel called to do and to pay attention to that. Um, then the second category would be people who are, you know, actively like, on the edge in whatever way, whether that's addiction, depression, anxiety. Um, for those people, if they've already tried a multitude of other things, which often they have, often they've tried the therapy and it just hasn't done it for them, they haven't found the right person, whatever it is, then I do feel it can be prudent to go straight to the bigger tools in the toolkit. It's like microdosing may help them a little bit, but it may also just amplify their awareness of their pain which isn't always a good thing. It's not always desirable. So for that person, it may be prudent to go sit with ayahuasca first, to go sit with iboga first if it's an addiction thing, okay. but paying special attention and care to what's their aftercare look like? What is their uh, support system and support network look like? Because it's pretty common and you may have witnessed this before as well. Something I see a lot that I'm very scared of is people who have a bunch of things wrong in their life and so then they go and they sit with a medicine and then the answer out the other side of the medicine is 
flip the table completely and I need to change absolutely everything. And it isn't rooted in reality. Like the, the, the urge Mm -hmm. is rooted in the reality of an emotion, which is things need to fucking change. Mm -hmm. But then the reaction is disproportionate to maybe the actions that would actually be prudent for them. So having the support system helps put some checks and balances on that of like, Again, don't quit the job the week after the ayahuasca ceremony. Maybe don't break up immediately after the ayahuasca ceremony. Let it settle a little bit and then make the decision. Right. And that, because that is, I think two things with that is, you know, that impulsive rash decision-making is in reaction to, like you said, we're in the emotion right now, which may be irrational. Like, like, like you said, there's a validity to the emotion, but not necessarily do we want to act on that? Um, it's more reactionary and impulsive rash. Um, and that typically mirrors some of the problematic things that might've been going on in their life prior to the medicine, you know, of like, I'm uncomfortable with something like quick decision, quick fix, like, you know, kind of like come out, um, frazzled, frenetic, manic, you know, to like have that urgency to fix something. And and instead of like slowly, like surrendering distress tolerance, you know, some of those things to make more of a, a decision based on a response and integration and like moving slowly and thinking things through having that forethought. Um, that is often, I think people, you know, as we say, you do one thing is how you do all things. And until that's, you know, like until we learn to do new ways, you know, do things new ways, that's how we will continue even after the ceremony. Yeah, yeah right. absolutely. It's a, it's definitely a pitfall for people of, you know, even if they aren't in those desperate situations to be aware of, because sometimes, God, there's this quote and I haven't been able to find the attribution to it because mm-hmm. I've just been looking for forever. It's such a good quote. Um, but it's for most people, we're so disconnected from our soul mm-hmm. and so alienated from ourselves that when we first meet our own soul, it, we think it's an alien. Yeah. And I just love that concept because so many of us are so disconnected from ourselves and our own intuition and our own inner guidance that in this first, you know, watershed moment of an ayahuasca ceremony, like, oh, I talk to aliens. And it's like, well, maybe. But if we ran the full gamut of possibilities Mm -hmm. and assessed, okay, if it was aliens, what were they telling you? (laughs) What was the direction? What should you probably do with your life as a result of that? So it's just a pitfall to be aware of that we can over-literalize our experiences simply because we don't yet have the context or the breadth of experience to understand like, oh, that was an archetype I was running up against. Oh, that was showing me how I used to be and how I should be now instead. Okay. Yeah. And that's such a function of the ego, you know, our ego and the ego gets a bad rap, you know, like we need the ego, you know, it does some phenomenal things for us. It's our GPS and our protection system, but it experiences itself in relation to, and that's partly why, you know, we can over identify with certain things um, that are outside of us because that's, you know, the ego doing its job essentially, which then in, for example, ceremony, when we have, you know, these wisdom drops or these downloads, we will then externalize that wisdom to being, you know, an alien told me or a, you know, grandmother ayahuasca told me or so and so, you know, whatever came through that it was something else external. And that's again, the ego being like, it, it's that, that right yeah and where it's like no that's you you know like you said it's an archetype within or that's you know however we want to conceptualize that um and that's an interesting 
growth moment, I think, to, you know, really experience unity consciousness in real time and not then like create separation. Yeah. You're so quick to do that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a thing too. And I exist in both states and yeah. I can access both states and that's right. pretty cool. Yeah. part of the human experience. Right. And that's where like the non, um, non-dualistic thoughts and experiences get confusing because in order to understand non-duality, we are having a dualistic experience, yeah. you know, it's such a exactly. um, circular mind trap that we can fall into. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that uh, <laughs> whenever someone's like really, really committed to the non-dualism, mm -hmm. it's like, then why did we create this experience? Yeah. If the goal is to be completely non-dual at right. all times, right? We would have just been that, right? From the jump, mm -hmm. <laughs> chose this for some reason. So right. embrace yeah. both sides. I think, like I think Aubrey does this well, where he talks about just like, yeah, we're here to also be like the pleasure monkey, but also to be the spiritual archon. Like we're both, mm -hmm. and that's right. cool, right? Yeah, and that you know we don't. It's funny how we will get into this. Um, this ranking and, and judging of, you know, the third dimension or the fifth dimension, you know, that one is better than the other. And, you know, sure, there's, you know, pros and cons, especially to perhaps more third dimensional experiences, um, because that can be limiting, right, if we're not also like, um, considering fourth, fifth and beyond. However, that's where we are. Right? Like, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like we're here in the third dimension. Like you said, we created this experience. Here we are. This is our playground. This is the context. This is the, the learning environment in which we need. And if we did not need that for now, we, we wouldn't have had it, you know, yeah. we would, <laughs> we it wouldn't have been, we wouldn't be so anchored in either. Yeah. You chose this right. for some reason, mm -hmm. not sure why, but you chose it. Right. Theoretically or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Going back to something that you had said about the microdosing and the um, like sitting in a more, I guess, condensed experience, you know, with the microdosing, I look at that as a little bit more of like a tool, you know, something that you can do perhaps daily for a little while or, you know, still function about your day. And then when we have like when we sit in ceremony, it's more almost like an intervention, so to speak, yeah. something that's more intense and, and also condensed. Um, would you say that? In the microdosing experiences that, um, what am I at? Let me find words. Um, that some of those like higher awarenesses still come through or is that more, because I, I know sometimes with microdosing, even in my experience, it's not as perceptible, which is in part the point, um, you know, for at least for my mind to be able to perceive it's happening more, you know, under the surface. Um, do you feel like we're still opening up to some of those like bigger concepts and experiences? Yeah, I would say that it depends on what synergistic practices the person has. So yeah. I have microdosed and meditated for like an hour before and had just profound insights because yeah. it's just enough of a push to my normal meditation habit to like launch me just through the veil slightly. And I can yeah. get my head above the water and go, whoa, look at all that. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it can have that effect. However, I think on average, if someone was just microdosing, let's say in isolation, um, it's going to be more of just slightly more aware of your emotion, mm -hmm. slightly positive mood. Mm -hmm. End of the day. Wow, this is a really good day. A little more present. That's a big one. A little bit more able to just go like, wow, this is a really beautiful day outside. Man, look at the sun shining. That's nice. Um, so I don't think it, it necessarily does those bigger 
aha moments. However, when it's paired with yoga, when it's paired with somatic breath work, when it's paired with meditation, it's a pretty powerful synergistic tool that can actually get you some deep places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think that with, uh, you know, when we're microdosing and we're doing other practices, um, we stay in a more familiar state of consciousness. And then like you said before, there's less fear and we're building a relationship. We have a little bit more confidence, perhaps know how to ride the wave, know what to expect. And then we have our other tools that we also have a relationship with to help navigate those experiences. Whereas with, you know, ayahuasca or some of the more powerful plants, um, that that's part of the purpose is to, or powerful doses, I should say that, that, um, suppresses, you know, the ego, the mind so that, you know, our subconscious unconscious can come out to play and having, you know, all those, which is where the resistance comes in of like, Oh no, you don't, you know, where we, and then we're afraid and things like that. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Because I think that's sometimes um, in some of my client work as well that, you know, people wanting to have those, not necessarily a peak experience, but something that is completely um, outside of their day-to-day grasp, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not sure how else to integrate that in something that might yeah. be, you know, in smaller doses. Yeah, I think it's important as a conceptual framework to think about the further outside of the day-to-day grasp, the harder it is to bring back. Yeah. So when we talk about things like 5-MeO-DMT, you know, the primary reaction after the fact is, what was that? Yeah. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And people have beautiful, profound experiences, but until they've built the psychic skill set to hold those, they don't always bring everything back. It could be a really good pattern interrupt, but mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to bring back a beautiful microdose day where you have some insights or a lower dose journey where you have some insights, but you're still pretty present. You're mm-hmm. still able to kind of go, okay, there's the room around me, but also, wow, that's an interesting thought. I've never mm-hmm. thought about that. So mm-hmm. sometimes I watch in my clients, there'll be the urge to blast off, mm-hmm. which is also ego. Yeah, That's the urge to kind of launch past all of the resistance. Like mm-hmm. if I take a big enough dose, then there can be no resistance. And it's like, right. well, but you deal with the resistance in everyday life. Mm-hmm. So what's the point of blasting past it? Like then right. you don't get a chance to work with it and to mm-hmm. train your ego like that team of draft horses that's pulling the cart of your consciousness. Like mm-hmm. if that's a well-trained team, we can take you some really cool places. If it's mm-hmm. a badly trained team, you're in the ditch for the fifth time this week. <laughs> right. And, and then there's such bypassing in that, you know, which I think is, I mean, there's a little bit of human nature to bypassing. It's like, we don't, we don't want to do the hard part. You know, we don't want to do the, the uncomfortable part. And so like we can give some grace to that part of ourselves that is resistant. And yet they're the only way out is through, you know, and that we do need sometimes, yeah, the, the hard part, the resistance or the whatever. And, and what is within that is medicinal as well. And like you said, whether that's just building the, the psychic skill set or um, whatever we glean from that discomfort. And yet there's just no, there's no bypassing it. Yeah. yeah in the sometimes, you know, exactly. And it's, you know, there is value. Also, I'll call out my own hypocrisy here, um, mm-hmm. you know, because my first experience was that it was the blast off. So there is some value to be had in getting to a place like if you're really depressed or you're really desperate there's value to be had in getting to the place where you can see a glimpse of unity or oneness or love or connection because you usually have the disease of addiction or the disease of depression because of disconnection so it's like there's value in the witnessing of that state of being where you go okay i know that that's possible 
So maybe it's worth it for me to try a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. but you just want to be careful to not continue to seek that as your only access road to that state of being, because then you end up in a new different addiction pathway. Right. Yeah. How do you feel that um, psychedelic breath work or, you know, um, how do you feel like that compares to plant medicine? It's hard for me to say. I have had some fair, you know, on a scale out of 10, let's say I've had some five out of 10 experiences on it. Mm -hmm. And I know some people who report like nine out of 10 experiences on Mm -hmm. breath work. So it's hard for me to say exactly. I'd say my personal experience is it's a really beautiful tool in the toolkit, Mm -hmm. but because it requires an active component of my breathing or my holding my breath, it puts you in a space where the length of time you have to operate in the psychedelic space that you end up in is shorter than it would be if you were doing, say, a mushroom journey of you know four to five hours. So I think it has its place and people certainly seem to be able to produce some potent experiences with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps it's just not quite as, I don't even know this isn't a strong belief. So I'm open to this being changed further on, but it's perhaps just not as useful in the sense that there's not as much working time right. actually in the space. Right. Yeah. Because we're working on other things as well, you know, mm-hmm. like staying in the breath pattern and use of the duration is not as long. And therefore we can't surrender as fully because we also have to stay active and present enough in the breath mm-hmm. in order for that container to the structure of the container to be there. Yeah. That's, and I know for my clients, I recommend often if they don't have any experiences in the psychedelic world to start with breath work because it is shorter. Um, They have a little bit more control, you know, where, you know, after you take a dose of something like you're off the races, you know, whether you like it or not, Um, where with breath, if, if it is too intense or something arises, um, you know, that they, they are reminded that they have control over their experience more so than, full surrender. Um, but you know, even like in Sedona last fall with, um, Haley and, um, Lucas, like that was super potent container that they had created. And, you know, all of us, I think how, how many was it per time, like 7,500 people per time, like there was a lot of circulation happening in that, you know, and I know that some people have very intense, um, experiences. I, myself, mine was pretty powerful, but light, you know, it felt really easy and like warm, um, where I don't know that that was everybody else's experience, but. So for these people like giving birth energetically. (laughs) (laughs) I know literally, literally. Yes. Yeah. Breath is really interesting. I think the really cool thing about it is that it's so accessible and it's just, you Mm -hmm. can always do five minutes of breath work. It's always available to you. And the state change Mm -hmm. is probably one of the most desirable state changes of any, you know, psychedelic adjunct in terms of just how with five to 10 minutes of intentional breath work, you can go from like, this is the worst day ever to this is a pretty damn good day and not be signed up for a 12 hour ayahuasca journey. (laughs) Right. Right. And that accessibility piece is really important because there are many, you know, many individuals that don't have access to plant medicine or, um, therapists even, you know, whereas like with breath work, we always have the breath and we can find facilitators online or, you know, and so it's something, it's a tool that nearly anybody can have access to, which I think is also important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we're coming up on time um, soonish. I would love to hear, is there um, any additional things that you'd like to share with us about your work that I haven't asked about or any other um, pieces of wisdom that you'd like to share with listeners regarding men's work or psychedelics or anything that we haven't touched on yet? The difficulty of self-generating something and calling it wisdom is profound. (laughs) (laughs) Nuggets of advice, let's say. Um, Yeah, I think the main things, just what I've been working on recently that I've been really excited about is helping men have some more context for just the dating landscape, because this has been a repetitive thing. Every one of my male clients, whether they're in a relationship or not, has just been like, I have no tools for this whatsoever. I don't know how to deal with it. So I've been working very slowly, mind you. So by the time this comes out, the article will probably not be fully fleshed out and it'll probably be multiple parts. But I've been working on an article that sort of builds a ground up ethical approach to dating as a man. Like the shit I wish I knew when I was 16. That would have made my life dramatically easier and the relationships dramatically better. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that I'm pretty excited about. And Really, I think one of the profound pieces from that is the most men do things the backwards way. Mm -hmm. We go, who will take me? She will. Okay, good enough. Now, how can I make it work? Instead of first, who am I? Mm -hmm. What are my moral standpoints on a variety of topics? What do I stand for? What are my ethics? What do I believe? What will I tolerate? What won't I tolerate? Mm -hmm. Do I have clarity on why that's the case? Mm -hmm. And sort of starting from this ground up approach to actually building a person who knows who they are fully first before they go seeking dates, before they go seeking the women they want to fulfill them and to complete them and all the stuff that we learn from movies when we're a kid. And it's been cool in the writing of it because I've even further clarified things for myself of just these ethical standpoints um you know as you're writing down different statements like i had one that was like i don't sleep with married women and i was like okay why is that because i've been in open relationships before mm-hmm. and really gotten a lot out of that but mm-hmm. you know ultimately came to the conclusion i was like my purpose of why i'm here is the most important thing to me yeah. to help others and to minimize harm done in the world mm-hmm. so that's my purpose okay that's fundamental so then a layer above that to engage in something that has the potential to a cause some sort of drama that would knock me off path for my purpose. Okay. That's a problem that would leave me in a space where I'm not moving towards my purpose the way I should be. And secondarily has the potential to cause, you know, emotional harm to one or both of the parties involved. Okay. I'm not for that. So it's just like gaining these little clarities on why my ethic is certain things that really helps me to then in the moment, be really clear on, no, I don't do that. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Or, oh yeah, awesome. I love that. Right. And I think for a lot of men, um, just approaching from that paradigm of mm-hmm. who am I? What do I stand for? What are my ethics? If they do that first, before any of the just like how to talk to women, at least they will be clear. Mm-hmm. And at least the person they're talking to will be receiving a clear person who knows yeah. who they are and what they're for. So that's something I've been really excited about and something I think was missing from a lot of men's education on how yeah. to date. Yeah. And that, then that thinks downstream a little bit, you know, of, um, you know, 
how do these things feed into each other? You know, my morals, my values, my ethos, so to speak. And how does that inform my decision-making? And if I make this decision that may or may not be in alignment, what is the impact that that has? And, and then how does that circle back to yeah, my purpose or my relationship with myself? excuse me, my relationship with myself and things like that. Because there is a lot of emphasis on, um, or be, there's more emphasis now on thinking more upstream, you know, of like where did these behaviors, patterns, value systems, et cetera, come from, you know, when we understand like our childhood, our parental relationships, our attachments, et cetera, yeah. um, that we can see what what's informing us. And then like applying that, like how do I yeah, what's going to happen based on the decisions that I make now, you know, and, and that full spectrum. Yeah. What are you, what are your thoughts on um, the, I guess the support that's needed for young men, teens, adolescents, children, you know, where a lot of this stuff starts <laughs> or in, in theory should start, but doesn't, Absolutely. you know, we do a lot of intervention um, wherever we can, I guess, but it's typically after many of these things have been established Um what are what do you think is needed in the earlier years? Yeah, I think the primary emphasis on truth telling mm-hmm. and being honest both with yourself and with the person. Yeah. I think uh a lot of the pain arises from that central cord. So like if I could do one thing, it would be that. Mm-hmm. Um in addition to that, perhaps just understanding that just because someone doesn't like you. It just means that you two weren't puzzle pieces that fit. Like if I was explaining this to a five-year-old, big, like, hey, you know how the triangle doesn't go in the circle hole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, some people you meet are triangles and you're a circle and that's okay. Right. So you don't need to be attached emotionally yeah. to every person you talk to, which is a lot of the pain men experience early on in their younger dating life is everything's attached to the big moment of like, okay. I went and I asked her to go to the Sadie Hawkins. Well, I guess Sadie Hawkins is the other way around. I went and asked her to prom. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. And then she said no. Mm-hmm. And I was devastated because right. now I'm a piece of crap because she doesn't want to go with me. It's like, no, 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 no. It's just not a good fit. And that's yeah. okay. So if right. you can understand that from the jump, no bitterness builds. Mm-hmm. You just go, cool. Right. I'm proud of myself for asking for the thing I wanted yeah. and being brave enough to go say something mm-hmm. and operate in truth and honesty and respect. Yeah. And now... It's okay. Yeah. So those would be the main things. Yeah, that's good. And I think in that is um, being aware of the meaning that we create out of experiences and and how we define ourselves by those things. So, you know, the difference between a young man that might ask someone to prom and she says no, um, that, you know, that means that I was rejected. I'm not good enough. You know, yada, 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 whatever that ends up being. Whereas, you know, with, with other coaching, it's like, she said no. And who knows the meaning? She just said, no, well, you know, we don't always even have to dissect. Exactly. It might not mean anything like she had another date. She's not going, she doesn't want to go. We're not the right fit. She might yeah. not like guys. Might not like guys. <laughs> yeah. Who knows, you know? And, right. and sometimes I think there's such value to just being like, I don't know. And I don't, I don't need to know. Like, I don't need exactly. to make, create meaning out of this. It means she said no, period. You know? Yeah keeping it simple Do a, a brief temporary analysis on how I walked up and talked to her. Like there's use there. It's not like you never look at your own behaviors and go, right. don't I cause this in some way? Yes. You go, okay. But you know, I was kind, I was respectful. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. It's not about me. Right. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. It's not about me. That four agreements don't take it personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Wonderful. Alex, this has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I feel like I could talk and talk for, and, for hours. Um, where do we find you on um, the interwebs? Yeah. So Instagram and now TikTok, finally. Oh, how are you feeling about TikTok? Are you enjoying it? You know, I'm enjoying it in the sense that one of my age being 31 could possibly enjoy TikTok, which is as a weird spectacle, but it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm pushing it's on my... Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, pushing all my Instagram reels to there. So right. it works. But on both tic- on uh, Instagram, it's at Alexander Diesel. Um, on TikTok, it's Alexander Diesel TV. Um, and then I also have a podcast, Through the Veil, and a website of the same name, Through the Veil. So those are most of the places to come find me. Beautiful. Thank you. And I will put all of that in the show notes for our listeners to contact you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciated it and love your interview styles. This was awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This is such a pleasure.